So in the first part of the introduction to apologetics, I talked about my own faith journey, um, how the death of my cousin led me not only to question the existence of God, but to outright deny his existence. And while I denied his existence for those years that I considered myself an atheist, I also hated him. Which in hindsight seems ridiculous, right? Um, But as I talk to those who have deconverted from the faith, and I use the word there in quotes, it is a common theme, and it's your first fill in the blank tonight, and it's this. It is not that they no longer believe in God. It is they hate the God they don't believe in. It is not that they no longer don't believe in God. It is that they hate the God that they don't believe in. And I am not the only one I know of who went through this. High-profile deconversions both over the summer and in many points in history point to the same idea. A leading academic atheist who I got to interview when I was in seminary on a radio program um, that I was running soundboard for at the time, we got to sit down with him and we asked him why he had abandoned the Christian faith And this was his first response. He said this. He said, I abandoned the Christian faith when a close friend of mine died in a drunk driving accident. And it was then I began to question the goodness of God. Notice for him and for me and for others like us that it wasn't the evidence against God. It wasn't scripture's reliability. It wasn't anything academic. It was that a bad thing happened in life. And he thought from reading the Bible that those things weren't supposed to happen. Former students who have walked away from the faith have always pointed to two things as a reason for them walking away. One, instances where bad things happen to them. Suddenly God is not just when evil strikes. Or two, the other common reason is lust. God doesn't seem so attractive when the cute girl in English 101 is interested in them. And that is always uh, the first thing they point to. Um, But lust is a different conversation. Sometimes former Christians bring up apologetic type questions after talking about either reason one or two. But it is always secondary. It is always there to justify their beliefs or their unbelief. It is never a foundation of it. And that is the main point. We are rarely, and I would argue, and I think modern psychology would argue, if ever, products of pure reason. It's your next one in the blank. We are products of what we want. Our will controls all the choices we make. Our will controls all the choices we make. Take Professor um, Lewontin, a geneticist and one of the world's leading supporters of evolutionary theory. This is what he says about his commitment to naturalism and to denying the existence of God. In a very candid interview, he said this about the possibility of a designer in the evolutionary process. This is what he said. We take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs, in spite of its failure to fulfill many of its extravagant promises of health and life, in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated gesso stories, because we have a prior commitment, a commitment to materialism. 
No matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated, materialism is an absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. This is your next fill in the blank. It is not evidence that leads him to deny God. It is his prior commitment to do so. It is not evidence that leads him to deny God. It is his prior commitment to do so. Remind me of a book I need your help with later. It's your field of study. Yeah, you. You weren't at the SALT meeting and I meant to bring it up with you then. For me as a teenager, that last statement, that last fill in the blank was absolutely true. And while God did use apologetics to have me consider Jesus as the Son of God, it was not just apologetics. It was a combination of three things in no particular order. One, honest answers to hard questions. Someone gave me honest answers to the hard questions of life. That was one thing they did. Two, they had a real interest in my life. They called me by name and cared to know who I was and my story. And three, the Holy Spirit's work in softening my heart and ultimately uniting me to Christ. Those are the three things in no particular order that led me to consider Jesus as the Son of God. So what are the things I want you to take away with this knowledge? We're going to cover three things tonight. First one's this. Pursue people as Christ pursued you. Pursue people as Christ pursued you. If people didn't know my name at youth group, or at least invite me to sit next to them, I probably wouldn't have been back the following week. It's just a plain fact. But they did. And now I stand before you. That's a weird coincidence, right? That's a weird turn of events, right? They pursued me. If you start religious conversations with people without ever showing that you care for them, you might be missing a key component, right? And if you aren't having religious conversations with people that you do care about, you are missing a key component. Pursue those around you. Have religious conversations. Offer to pray with others. And then do it in front of them. Don't be ashamed of the faith that is grounded in reality. Be emboldened by the fact that your faith is is the only way to explain the reality without absurdity. We're going to see that over the course of the next year. And know that sometimes, you need to know this. Know that sometimes all the evidence in the world won't convince anyone. We're going to turn to John 11. We sang a song about it today. Point two, we never communicated this, but good job. That's the Lazarus song, in my opinion. Glorious day. John 11 with me. Lazarus, friend of Jesus, he's dead. He dead. He died. He was buried for several days in the tomb. Then Jesus comes to Mary and Martha, and they take him to the tomb. People have seen the dead body, mind you. This is a tight-knit community. Somebody dies... Everyone shows up. They've seen the body. People in the community have probably buried this guy. They were there for the funeral. They were there for the burial. Okay? Many probably even like 
brought meals for the family over the course of the last couple days because it's a grieving period. And look at what Jesus does here, okay? Uh, who did I have read? John 11, with a loud note from the diaphragm. 38 through 44. No, no, 38 through 45. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you would always that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out loud with a voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he had did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. It's one of the most perplexing sections of Scripture for me. Right? Like, again, think about it. These people watched the man die, they watched the family suffer, they watched the funeral. They were there for the burial. They brought meals to the family. They watched the sisters weep. They watched Jesus weep with the sisters. They watched Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, not believe he's the Son of God, and hate him enough to inform his enemies. This is the condition of the human heart. Depravity. It's your next fill in the blank. This is the condition of the human heart. Depravity. Don't be surprised by that. There are people on the planet, and I would say a good many, that if they saw a miracle, they would still deny God. Because it happened when Jesus was alive. Jesus raised a man from the dead in front of them. And they went, nope. Not that guy. Depravity is an inner heart condition that prevents us from loving any truth that is in opposition to our internal desire to be independent, free, and self-governing. Because we are born depraved with a fallen nature, we hate the God of the Bible. We can, though, love a God of our own imaginations, a God we can't control. And people want a God they can control. And when he is as wild as a lion and as dangerous, well, it no longer suits them. So what do we do with that in mind? Next fill in the blank. Pursue people as they suffer. And pursue God as you suffer. Pursue people as they suffer and pursue God as you suffer. One of my favorite theologians, uh, Jackie Hill Perry, She's a spoken word poet, too. She won't be at the event we're going to in November, but she dope. 
Um, so this is what she says. In some deconversion testimonies, the various ways in which suffering can be experienced are a significant factor in what turns people away from the faith, as they should. Trials refine and reveal. The true believer is strengthened by suffering, and the false convert is undone by it. And it's not just Jackie that's saying this, right? She's wise, but it's not just Jackie. Turn with me to James 1, 12 through 18. James 1, 12 through 18. Whenever you're ready, Peyton. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Yep. <laughs> then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that he should be a kind of, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Excellent. Which leads me to my next point, which is this. Suffering reveals faith. Suffering reveals faith. Paul David Tripp, it's the next quick fill in the blank for you. Paul David Tripp says this. Suffering draws out the true thoughts, attitudes, assumptions, and desires of your heart. Suffering draws out the true thoughts, attitudes, assumptions, and desires of your heart. How do you respond to suffering? How do you respond to suffering? Do you call out to God or do you curse God? How do you respond when you suffer? The Bible says nowhere, literally nowhere, that our lives on earth will be easy. Think about it. All of Jesus' best friends died awful deaths. Except for John because they tried to boil him alive and it didn't work. So they put him on an island in isolation. Much better than death. We got a book out of it though. It's a great revelation. You can expect suffering. You can expect it. And and we will see this in the weeks to come as we discuss suffering. We have the right because of Christ's suffering to call it evil. To point to the pain and to weep to those with to weep with those who weep. We are not left in our pain forever. 2 Corinthians 1, 3-5 reminds us, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. The writer of It Is Well With My Soul, it's one of my favorite hymns, think about it, he's just lost his family on a cross-Atlantic journey. And as he's carried back across the water on a ship, They get to the point in the journey where they know that the ship carrying his wife and children went down. And he pens the song, It Is Well With My Soul. He writes, When peace like a river attendeth my way, 
When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And he sang that through tears. We are not saying, as Christians, you can't weep. We know from the story of Lazarus that Jesus himself did. But we know from that story also that Jesus redeems it too. Remember the quote by Paul David Tripp. Suffering draws out true thoughts, attitudes, and assumptions, and desires of your heart. Suffering will reveal what your treasure is. If it is not God, then you will curse him. But if Jesus is your treasure, well, let's read Romans 8. Such a good section. Will bring much comfort in suffering. We'll discuss this even more in the weeks to come. Romans 8, 18 through 30. So it's clear from this that suffering is guaranteed. But the question becomes how you will respond to it. The third point I really want to kind of stress tonight is this. Is that knowing apologetics can help you keep your emotions in check. We talked about this last year a lot as we talked about the culture's kind of... This is where they find their truth in emotional kind of reality, right? I feel offended, therefore I must be the victim. Or you just could not know how to take a joke. Like, we don't know, right? But, I mean, for you, it's probably definitely you're a victim, right? We spend so much of our time wondering and being controlled by our emotions. And knowing apologetics can help you keep your emotions in check. As much as apologetics is known as defending the faith, it also does a great job of grounding it. Remember from last week, faith is not a subjective experience. It involves both your will and your mind. And when you are thinking clearly, your mind and your will are walking hand in hand. 
But for many, including us most of the time, we are driven by our will, by our emotion. And we toss it up to the idea of this. This is one of those, we talked about one of these false narratives that the culture preaches. And that is, I can't help the way that I feel. I can't help the way that I feel. Jeffrey Johnson says this, It is a false but common notion to think that we are not responsible for our emotions. We often speak as if our emotions are alien creatures that attack us from the outside as if they are outside of our control. I can't help the way I feel. You would feel the same way if this had happened to you. I couldn't help that if I fell in love with her. You can't help who you love. How could my emotions not be affected if I learned something bad has happened to my mother or if I hear that my rich uncle is about to give me a million dollars? Of course my emotional ups and downs are a result of factors outside of my control. I am the victim of my own emotions. I am the victim of my circumstances. I'm an emotional person. I can't help it. With such common statements as these, people would have us believe that their emotions are not derived from within themselves, but are external circumstances. And with these phrases, we remove our own responsibility. With these phrases, we remove our own responsibility. And I can promise you that's what it is. When I say phrases like this, it's because I don't want to be responsible for how I'm responding. Every time. If you recall from last year's 2020 series, the difference between a child and an adult, one of them, is knowing when to listen to your emotions and to know when they're lying to you. It's one of the differences between a child and an adult. My children will say to me all the time, You hate me! Well, why? Well, you won't let me have my dessert. You didn't finish your vegetables, kid. My emotions are telling me something, and they are, they're definitely true. They don't say that, right? But, like, I mean, that is what the culture would say. Okay? Your emotions, it's your next one blank, but your emotions do not, do give you one very clear picture. It paints what you treasure. It paints what you treasure. Emotions are not alien forces that are caused by our ever-changing circumstances. Rather, we are responsible for our emotions. We are responsible for loving that which is good and hating that which is bad. It is true... This is your next one on the blank. It's longer ones. It is true that our emotions are connected to our circumstances. I'm not saying you need to become a Jedi and remove all emotions from your life. The Sith had it right there. I said it. All you Star Wars fans, I said it. It is true that our emotions are connected to our circumstances. It is not true, however, that our emotions are controlled by our circumstances. Rather, our emotions are controlled by our values. Namely, the things that we love and the things that we hate. This is the case for all people. So how does knowing apologetics help keep your emotions in check? Because ultimately, apologetics is about knowing Christ. It is about having an objective standard in which to view reality, namely the Word of God. We talked about that last week. And a filter in which to check our emotions, our desires, our will, our suffering, our joy. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
You can call it the Big Bang if you would like. I think God's voice created everything out of nothing and existence was probably pretty loud. He created mankind with a purpose to glorify God, yet man fell into sin. God not only knew this was going to happen, He decreed this was going to happen because the most beautiful characteristics of God are found in the midst of suffering. Think about that. The most beautiful characteristics of God are found in the midst of suffering. To glorify God perfectly, we need to understand how suffering works. How? When we love our enemies, we reflect God. Can't have enemies without suffering. When we love our enemies, we reflect God. When we show our compassion to the poor, we reflect God. When we are courageous in the midst of fear, we reflect God. When we deny ourselves what we deserve for the sake of another, we reflect God. When we suffer unjustly, yet still sing, it is well with my soul, we reflect God. Because when Jesus, who lived a perfect life, went through all the things I just described, when he went through all those things, he pleaded with the Father on his executioner's behalf. Forgive them, Lord, for they know not what they do. Jesus displays perfect justice and perfect love when he gave up his life for you. And when you surrender to God and are united to Christ, you will begin to reflect God more and more. You will glorify Him. And all this is known and experienced in the midst of suffering. Again, some of the most beautiful, if not the most beautiful characteristics of God are found in the midst of pain. Some of you have not done that. In a room this size, it's just basic math the treasure you seek in life will lead to suffering with no hope if you do not have Jesus so what do you treasure treasure and if today you say Jesus yes I will treasure you in the midst of it all pray this prayer with me that we can say yes to Jesus I want you in the midst of the pain of this world bow your heads with me Jesus unite me to yourself May your spirit dwell within me. Sanctify me by your word and by your church. Remove my will that is set against yours and replace it with a desire to glorify you in all circumstances. May this be the day I repent of my sin. I turn away from my desires that are opposed to you. I turn away from the garbage. And turn to you, the only treasure worth selling all my possessions for. Forgive me of my sin. Unite me to yourself. Sanctify me as I walk in your will.